coming in hot, hot, hot. Lisa shares her financial tips and strategies to build wealth, have fun with finances, and be debt-free without having a restrictive budget. From bankrupt to millionaire, Lisa knows what it's like to feel as if you're living paycheck to paycheck. Her unconventional money multiplier system is the very wealth protocol that enabled her to retire two and a half years early, pay down $100,000 of debt in six months, and move to her dream home at the beach. Welcome to this episode of I Date Money. I'm your host, Lisa Drennan, and today we have another beautiful guest, Amanda Blackwood. She is an accomplished artist, author, public speaker, speaker, not speeder. (laughs) She speeds a lot in public. That's not a true statement. She's a podcast host, a trauma recovery mentor, and a survivor of human trafficking. So this episode is going to get a lot of downloads because I know this is really, really important to so many of my listeners out there. So be sure you're going to hit share on this one. Amanda has spoken on a multiple of state multitude of stages, international summits, radio programs, and has published over a dozen books. She launched two podcasts, one that focuses on interviewing other authors of trauma and the other that discusses the long-term consequences of trauma and how to fight back for a better life. A portion of every book sale goes to help fight human trafficking. So be sure to check the show notes, get that link, get that book. So welcome, Amanda. Thank you so much for sharing this space with us. Um, We're here to hear your money story, but we know that the money story ties in with your experience in human trafficking. And despite this experience, you have done some beautiful things. And I I just love that. So we're we're excited to hear all all of this stuff. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. I mean, I'm really excited to be here. This is a little bit different from what I would normally talk about. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that when I asked you, when I invited you to the show, I was just like, well, she's got a money store and it's going to tie in somehow. So I like how the flow is just going to go. And it's just going to really touch a lot of the listeners, uh, especially I know a lot of my um, people that tune into the show are against, you know, obviously supporting human, not supporting it, but they support the funding. How do I say that? I'm a little The tum- fight against. The fight against human trafficking. I actually went for a massage. I I connected with a new massage therapist who was absolutely wonderful. Her name is Lindsay in Melbourne Beach, Florida. And she has on the back of her door, like how to identify it and and, um, all that. So I was like, that's amazing. So just getting the word out there. So tell us your story. We'll we'll start with your money story and then we can weave in um, the, the experiences that you've had. So going back to little Amanda, when she was a little girl, when can you tell us about the very first time you met money? I think the very first time I was really introduced to it was when my mother wanted to teach me fractions, and she did this by using coins. So I learned how to count money back to people the way that you would do in a change window at a Wendy's drive-thru uh, when I was probably about three or four years old. I was ch- counting money back before I could read. I love that. What a great mom. (laughs) That's a great way to learn because I I used to be way back when, when I was a teenager, I was a cashier at our local grocery store and people did not know how to count back money. They had to look at the register and like, why don't you just count it yourself? Oh, what if I make a mistake? I said, you're just counting backwards. Like (laughs) there's so many people who don't, who can't do that. That's awesome. Right. What was it like growing up for you with money? Did you come from a, a secure financial background? Your parents, you know, both mom stayed at home, dad worked type of thing, or what was the dynamics like? 
Well, for a long time, my mother did stay at home. And I think a lot of that had to do with her background specifically. She and my father both grew up in rather poor neighborhoods. They grew up believing that the mom stayed at home to raise the children. So regardless of how much money somebody brought into the household, she was going to stay home and raise us until we were old enough to be trusted on our own. She didn't actually get a job and start working until I was in my in my teens. Mm-hmm. And she felt like we could stay home by ourselves at that point. My father was Air Force. Air Force does not pay very well for enlisted people. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until he retired when I was 15 and then he started getting his retirement pension plus getting another job outside of that that we started actually really having money. Mm. And what was how did that shape your attitude towards money? It shaped a little bit of everything about my life, honestly. I learned that you hold on to stuff. You take care of what you've got because you don't know when you're going to be able to replace it again. If something breaks, you don't replace it. You fix it. You don't Mm -hmm. use paper plates because that's a disposable item. You use reusable plates and you wash them. And if you run out of soap, you water it down. (laughs) (laughs) The frugal life at its best. I love it. So it came in handy for me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it comes in handy when you want to save money. Like a lot of entrepreneurs overspend, right? And, you know, one of the first things they say is like, well, look at your personal expenses. What are you spending your money on? Like, how are you? Food. I did a podcast episode about food and how we spend so much money at the grocery store only to bring home the food and then order something out for eat because we're too tired to cook. And then we buy all this fresh vegetables because we were probably hungry when we went to the grocery store. And then it gets rotten and throws away because we are t- don't have enough time to cook them or eat them fast enough because <laughs> we're too full or whatever. <laughs> so I always think about every single time you throw away money that's related to food. You look at pretend your food is cash and you're just tossing it in the garbage. So being frugal is very important. What was it like for you to get your first job? Oh my gosh, there was a sense of freedom in it. And I started working much earlier than most people. So my first few jobs, I was absolutely an entrepreneur. I would go door to door and ask people if I could wash their cars for $5. One of my earliest businesses that I had for myself was going and climbing an old dead oak tree and plucking out all of the mistletoe around Christmas time, tying red ribbons on it, loading it all up into a little red wagon and dragging it around at Christmas time and selling it door to door. Wow. Good for you. (laughs) I wanted candy. Mom wasn't going (laughs) to buy it for me. (laughs) So when you got all this money, I love that. We we see lots of mistletoe while we're driving along, you know, down the East Coast, going north to south. And some of those mistletoes are pretty high up there in those trees. So I imagine you had to climb pretty high to reach some of them. Oh, I took my life in my own hands more than once. (laughs) (laughs) What what a great idea. Any of of you listening out there, mistletoe for sale at Christmas time. What a great idea. Great way to make money. When you um, received money, how do you receive it? Like, what do you do with it? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Like, oh, I got cash. This is what I'm going to do. When I was young with these early businesses, my brother used to steal my money. Uh So I got in the habit of opening up an old piece of artwork on the wall and opening up the back cover of it and lining the back cover with this money. When I earned enough money to buy what it was that I wanted, I would go down and buy it and then make sure whatever change I had came in the largest bills available so that I could again put it in the backside of these pictures. I had money stashed all over our house. (laughs) 
<laughs> your artwork artwork is worth a fortune. <laughs> it you really find, was. <laughs> do, you, do you still find yourself doing that? Like let's let's line the pictures. I have in the past. Um, it's been kind of a thing for me when I was trying to escape bad situations in my life. Mm -hmm. But these days it's more about you know, my husband and I are com comfortable. Mm -hmm. We don't really have like, we're not really strapped for being able to pay the bills. And it's a difficult thing for my brain to wrap around. So I just kind of kick back and let him handle all the bills. I'm still super stingy and don't spend money on myself very often. And he laughs at that. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's uncommon, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I find a lot of women don't like to have fun money. And sometimes they'll have one thing that they treat themselves to. So it's so important to be able to treat yourself. So tell us about the human trafficking. How did that all happen? So the important thing to know, to recognize with human trafficking is what it actually is and is not. Yeah. So the Department of Homeland Security defines human trafficking as the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain labor or commercial sex acts from another person. So there's no mention of necessarily money. Commercial sex acts does not always equal money. And there's no mention of transportation. So you don't have to be smuggled across a border anywhere to be trafficked. In my case, I was trafficked three different times. Wow. Once when I was 18 by a boyfriend, once when I was 19 by a landlord, and the third time at 31 years old by a police officer I had known for seven years and was engaged to be married to. Oh, wow. So human trafficking typically does not take the form of kidnapping. We have this preconceived notion here in the U.S. because of movies like Taken, because of all these human trafficking films that are coming out now, that it happens by somebody kidnapping a child or kidnapping a young woman. 70% mm -hmm. of, of the people in sex trafficking are women, but they're not kidnapped. More than 85% of all victims of trafficking are trafficked by people they know and trust and people who have a sense of authority in their lives, whether this is boyfriends or girlfriends, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles. And a lot of times when it starts really young, it is the parents that are trafficking the children. Wow. Oh, that's so sad. It's, it's a really weird life. But I mean, when you grow up kind of poor the way I did, mm -hmm. you look for whatever it is that's going to be able to supply you with what it is that you're needing in life. Mm -hmm. You know, I also grew up in a rather abusive household. My mother was emotionally manipulative, very abusive. My father was physically violent. My brother was my first molester when I was only four years old. And I grew up in this household where that was everybody in my family. Right. And I felt very isolated. So by the time I was 18, I had already been running away since I was 15. Mm -hmm. I was a pathological liar. I had a lot of behavioral issues and I was looking for love and acceptance wherever I could find it. And when it came to the trafficking, what happened there was I started dating a man who was more than twice my age because he said that he loved me. He accepted me. He wanted to help me and to do what was best for me. When you're poor, you are looking for people to be able to provide for you and to make sure that you have a roof over your head. And he offered all of these things that I had a weakness for and had a, a, a lack of. Mm hmm and it became really easy to manipulate me and to force me into a situation that I didn't ever want to be in. Wow. Trafficking is a really scary place to be. So when I was trafficked the last time, yeah, I, I talk about this stuff all the time. Uh, when I was trafficked at 18, I was locked up in a small room for 52 hours, repeatedly assaulted. Uh, this was in a hotel in Las Vegas. 
When I got back to what was my home at the time, I left as soon as I possibly could because I recognized it as being abusive. I did not recognize it as being trafficking because for one, this was 1998. Human trafficking really wasn't a part of a vocabulary yet. Right. When I was 19, I had gone to Florida of all places (laughs) uh, and I was going there to stay with my dad's mother because I was planning on getting a surgery done on my knee. I'd injured myself on a job. When I got there, they decided they weren't actually going to come and pick me up from the Daytona Beach bus station. And I was on my own and I only had $5 to my name. At the time, what I didn't realize was that my family had called them and said, she's running away from her problems again. If you take her in, we'll never speak to you again. Um, So a young couple came and found me and said that they had a place for me to stay. They would allow me to stay there rent-free until I could get on my feet. But what they actually meant was that they were going to allow me to stay there until they could find the highest bidder because that's what happened. Um, I was locked up in that room for 23 and a half hours with no food, no water, no bathroom facilities of any kind. And in the uh, 80s and 90s, when I was growing up, there was this fantastic TV show called MacGyver. And a man could fix anything with a paperclip and a rubber band and a roll of duct tape. So in that moment of crisis, I actually had the clarity and forethought to think, what would MacGyver do? For a long time, I had a shirt that actually said, what would MacGyver do written on the front of it? Loved that thing. I wore it out until it fell apart. (laughs) (laughs) And I was able to get out and I left as soon as I could. And there's a lot of stuff that happened in between, but eventually I found my way out to California. I had been a high school dropout with no college education, and I saw that there were very few prospects for me in life Mm -hmm. at that stage. I was going to, in my mind, become the personal assistant to somebody very important because that's the only way that I could ever find myself in a very important position. Mm -hmm. It's the only way I would ever be able to really provide for myself, and that's what I really wanted and needed more than anything. Well, instead, I was on Alias and Will and Grace, and I modeled for Harley Davidson. I'd done a lot of really cool stuff out there. Yeah. And eventually, I made my way into mall security. I was a mall cop. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that must have been a lot of fun. (laughs) You know, it actually had its moments. Yeah. Within five months, I had busted open a huge embezzlement ring that my boss was running. Oh, wow. And then I took over. I became the director of public safety and security for six properties in LA County. And rather than being the assistant, I had an assistant of my own. And I had, I felt like I made it in life. And the whole time I had been in a long distance relationship with this guy that lived over in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And we'd gotten to know each other. We spent a lot of time on Skype doing video calls and stuff. Um, When he was having breakfast, I was having dinner. So we were at least sharing a meal together, even if it wasn't the same meal. And we would talk and hang out on the weekends and stuff. And eventually I went over to go and visit him and he came over to come visit me. And after seven years, we decided that we had fallen in love. So he asked me to get a fiance visa and move over there to be with him. And it took him seven days to start trafficking me. Oh, wow. He was definitely in a position of authority. He was Mm -hmm. a police officer. I could not go to anybody in the police service for help. I didn't feel safe doing so. Several of the people he was bringing over, I believe, were police and lawyers and judges and people of high authority positions. I didn't feel safe asking for help from anyone. Um, So while I was there, um, he was making money off of me left and right. 
I did finally manage to get out, obviously, because I'm not there anymore. Um, I was there for 152 days. I had to suffer through torture, like sleep deprivation, food deprivation, waterboarding, really awful things while I was there. And when I got out, I was thinking, this is over. I'm moving on with my life and everything from here is going to be fine. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to try to kill kill myself anymore. I'm not going to do any of these drastic things. I'm going to live a quiet life. And I considered changing my hair color and just going into hiding completely. And he continually attacked me anyway. He came over looking for me once. I saw him. He had my address off by one number. I don't know if he was there to kill me or kiss me. It didn't matter. I didn't want to see him. I wanted nothing to do with this guy. Yeah. Eventually, he hunted me so much that I finally left the state of California after living there for 14 years and feeling like that was my home. And I packed up an SUV with all of everything that I had accumulated, and I moved to Colorado. And it was three years after I got here that I found out that he had been posting all of these photos and videos that he had taken of me during the trafficking. Mm. He had put them up on pornography websites to make money off of me still. Wow. I kind of, I I kind of broke down at that point. I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know how to handle it. And I reached out to an anti-trafficking organization out here and they immediately paired me up with a pro bono legal service that was uh, going after these pornography websites and telling them they needed to pull the stuff down and explaining why and threatening them with legal action if they didn't. Wow. But every single time one went down, two more went up. Mm. So I finally sought a different anti-trafficking organization that paired me up with a therapist. And that first therapist, I traumatized her so much. I'm pretty sure she's never going to practice again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And the second one they paired me up with was amazing. But I went into it with my eyes wide open. And I told her right off the bat, I said, there's two big things for me. Number one, do not come at me right away with prescription drug ideas. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in a Band-Aid. I want a shovel. I want to dig this out by the roots. And number two, do not treat me like I'm a porcelain doll. Do not walk on eggshells. Do not pull the bunches. Tell it to me straight. Give it to me like it is. If I was going to break, I would have done it already. Wow. Yeah, your strength is so incredible. And what you experienced and endured for so long, like, I mean, and it's just, wow. And for you to be able to, you know, three times walk away from it and to have the money, like I can't like, so when you were in that last situation to get out, you had to have money to get out and to be able to flee because you were in a different country. Right. The Like all the logistics, like I'm thinking passport, airfare, all of those things. So did you, I mean, you, you had some great resources and tools. Were you thinking like MacGyver? (laughs) (laughs) I was kind of thinking like MacGyver, but more than anything, I was thinking like a a psychologist in a way. So I did attempt to get out very early on. I only had about a little bit more than $2,000 in my bank account at that time. When I tried to get out, uh, he had already taken my passport, my driver's license, my debit card, all that stuff away from me. I didn't have any of it. So I made sure one night that during the abuse, I continued to keep his whiskey glass full. 
Um, he did have a bit of a drinking problem, and I very much facilitated it that night. By the end of the evening, he was so drunk that when I talked him into giving me back that stuff so I could go to the bank and go pull out my money and give it to him so he could spend it, he believed me. And oh, instead, wow. the next morning I got on the on the computer and I purchased the earliest flight out that I could possibly afford, which was five days away. Oh, wow. And during that five days, the abuse continued and was so severe that I was uh, it ended up in the hospital with a kidney infection when the flight left and it was a non-refundable flight. So I only had $11 left to my name. So it was imperative that I was going to need money to be able to really escape and get out. I didn't have anything left. You know, I had $11. I was, I was lost. And at this point, he recognized that you know, I didn't give him the money. So I did not do what it was that I had told him I was going to do. He took my computer away forced me to give him the password so he could get in there. He found the ticket information and I dearly paid for it. Mm. But to finally get out after the suicide attempt, after I had already given up, I finally started leaving little breadcrumb trails of making him believe that I had developed severe Stockholm syndrome, also known as trauma bonding these days, okay. that I would do anything for him, that I was devoted to him and loved him and I would give my life for him. And towards the end of that 152 days, I sat him down one day and said, you know, I was here on a fiance visa. And the day that we had picked out that we were supposed to get married has already come and gone. And if I overstay my six month visa, I could get in a lot of trouble and I could get kicked out of the UK, never allowed back according to UK law. And you being a police officer, you could lose your job. We don't want that. So. What we can do is you can send me back to Los Angeles and I can find friends to stay with for the next six months and then I can come back. And if we move quickly enough, I could come back in time for Christmas. And wouldn't that be wonderful? It'd be our first Christmas together. And he got so excited at the thought. And of course, I had again been uh, filling up his whiskey glass repeatedly at this point. He was so excited that within two hours of that conversation, I had round trip tickets to get back to L.A. And that's when I tried to disappear. Yeah. Wow. So. Courage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had to use his money. <laughs> it's always great when you can use someone else's money. Oh, even better. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I had to feel like I was taking back a little bit of what he had taken from me too, because he was making money off of me when I was there. Yeah. You know, it was his money. It was in his bank account, but. We earned it through my abuse. Yeah. And that's, it's, I can't even, <laughs> it's so sad and so sick. And like to have this relationship with money where you want it so bad that you would hurt somebody and manipulate, manip, manipulate them to this point of another human being is suffering because you're getting money. And then what's that purpose? What's, you know, like I'm all about the relationship with money. I mean, that's what I date money is all about. But when we look at money as a person, what's the relationship that we have? And this, this pattern of this abuse with, you know, I'm going to abuse and, and use this person and, you know, in the sexual way and in this, you know, the physical abuse and all of that and the emotional, I mean, there's just so many layers there so I can get money. So what? So I can have control. So you know, and that's not what money is meant for. I mean, we don't use and abuse people in any shape or form to get money. 
And the psychology behind that, I mean, I couldn't even go there because I'm obviously not a psychologist, but I, I just think of it like, you know, when, when people say the money, root, money is the root of all evil. And if you think about human trafficking, that's the evil part of it. Right. But it's not money's, it's not the reason why money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money is the root of all evil, but just that the, the sickness and the twistness, the drive behind that to put someone so beautiful as yourself in that position. And you were so trusting and, you know, we all have this human need to want to be loved and, you know, you're seeking that, like you're just trauma after trauma after trauma that you were raised with. It's like, but you fought, you fought back and you, you knew things weren't right. And you're like, well, I'm going to leave because I know this isn't right. And I, I just imagine, you know, being able to, now you can, you've come through all of these experiences and now you can turn around and help other ladies that are in. And, you know, you said some men too, that are in this position and we really don't know the scope of it all. Like I didn't realize exactly what it involves. And I always thought they, you know, that human trafficking, they were kidnapped or I knew some were forced in by their families, like that their families did sell them because again, for money, because they're so poor. But if we can get back that relationship with money and say like, you know what, it doesn't matter how much money you have, it's what you do with it. And when you can respect money and you could love on money and share it with others in a loving way. And just like the people who took you in at 19, I mean, I can't even imagine being 19 years old, stranded, you know, neglect, uh, rejected, you know, abandoned by your family. You were promised that they would take care of you. And then your parents came in and threatened and, and I can't even imagine like for you to be able to build beautiful relationships, you have done amazing work. So, Thank wow. You. Like, like, I'm so proud. Like I, <laughs> I just met you and I'm so proud of you. <laughs> like, <laughs> what, like what an amazing testimony to, to share. And I understand why you've been on all these stages and I know you'll be on multiple stages. So thank you so much for just sharing that. And, you know, I, your work that you're doing with overcoming this, this experience. I mean, I, I can't even fathom in my mind. I mean, I grew up with abuse. I was molested by a family member and all of that, but you know, it's different than repeatedly, like, you know, like I think of the abandonment issues and, you know, there's the suicidal tendencies and things like that. And we think about the panic and the depression and all of that, but really growing from those experiences and coming on top the way you have, it's, it's amazing. And um, you said you wrote several books, which, which book is your heart and soul? What's the title of that book? That one is called custom justice because it is pretty much impossible to prosecute somebody for human trafficking across international borders. I will never have legal justice, but I will have my custom justice. Oh, and that wow. is by telling my story. If people are going to keep finding me from the internet because he posted my social media information with all that pornography, people need to understand why they're finding me. And now they do. Yeah. Well, you keep fighting. That's amazing. What's the best way for our audience to get connected with you? I'm very active on Facebook. So Amanda Blackwood Survivor. Um, I also, I have a couple of different websites, growthfromdarkness.com and detailedpieces.com. Okay, beautiful. And we'll include those in the show notes. Um, so listeners, please, please, if you or someone you know needs to connect with Amanda, do not hesitate. You've seen how she shared her story here and how money is like this root cause of this issue. And 
why people are doing this is just horrific. And um, just thank you, Amanda, for sharing um, and being so vulnerable. Would um, at this point, I just you know, you're going to have so many words of wisdom. You'll probably have a hard time choosing. But what are some words of wisdom that you can leave as we part? My favorite. We have grown up constantly hearing what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And that is a lie. The man who coined that aphorism, Frederick Nietzsche, came up with it in the 1800s, not too long before he died in an insane asylum. We can let go of that one. Mm -hmm. It is not our abusers. It is not our abuse. It is not our challenges that made us stronger. It is our own fortitude and will to keep going that made us dig deep, dig out that shovel, dig deep and find the strength within ourselves. Those people don't deserve credit for this. We do. That is so beautiful. I got the chills. And I, <laughs> love, I have the visual of the digging with the shovel with the roots, because that is when you can get to the root cause, you can really make massive change and be step into the person that you are meant to be, despite your circumstances, despite your trauma. So thank you again, Amanda, so much for sharing all of the things, your money story. And I, I just love how you <laughs> crafted the way to get money. Um, to do what you needed to do. Like you did it. And now you're in this beautiful, comfortable place. So thank you listeners for tuning into this show. Again, check the show notes, connect with Amanda, share this episode, give us some love. And if you have a money story that you'd like to share on the show, reach out. We'd love to have you as a guest. And remember, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It's what you do with it. Hey, hey, thanks for tuning in. Be sure to rate the show. Give us some love. We would love your review. And remember, it doesn't matter how much money you make. It's what you do with it. And some words of advice, pay yourself first. Are you ready to partner with money? Go check out the money dating game at idatemoney.com and choose your partner. We hope you always get the date you want.